So guys, I am just going to jump right in. If you're like me, you're tired. It's been a long weekend. Um, and probably your brains are pretty full right about now. But I hope God will uh, create a little bit more room for us. So with that, let me pray for us, and we will, uh, we will go for it. Father, I thank you for... Um, your goodness in our lives. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you've given us so much, both on this side of the grave and uh, you've prepared so much for us on the next side. Lord, I pray that uh, amidst our fatigue today, tonight, that you would uh, just speak through me that you would speak into the hearts of these men. Lord, that these truths that I think are so important would just sink down into our hearts, that they would transform us, that we might be able to live appropriately and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't stop there. I pray that each of us would be able to replicate these truths into the lives of our families, with the ultimate end, Lord, that not one of us would fall away or be lost, or that our families would fall away or be lost. So be gracious with us tonight, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You guys, what I want to do first, by way of introduction, is I want to talk about why I picked this title for my talk, God's Gift of Pain. Where's my clicker? Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do I need to move away from this? Okay. Whew. That'll wake you up. So in this verse, he's saying that two things have been granted to the Philippians, and by extension, two things have been granted to us. The first one is faith in God, and that's an easy gift, right? Two things have been granted, they've been given, they've been gifted to us, and that's an easy one for us to accept, right? All of us ready, readily accept that gift. Ephesians uh, 2.8 says that it's a gift, for by grace you have been saved through faith, in that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. But it's that second one, the gift of suffering, that's really hard for us to accept. And it's really that gift that all of us get, none of us want, and it's really that gift that keeps on giving. Peter also describes in 1 Peter 5.12 that it's the true grace of God. And he goes on to say that we need to stand firm in it. And so that's really my question that we're going to hunker down on this evening is, do you stand firm amidst the pain that God brings into your life? And if not, why not? And as I've thought about that question in my own life, when I don't stand firm amidst the pain that God brings into my life, it's usually because of a misunderstanding in one of these four arenas. It's a misunderstanding of God. It's a misunderstanding of myself. It's a misunderstanding of this world. Or it's a misunderstanding of pain itself. And so we're going to go through each one of these. And we're going to try and have our thinking um, tilted a little bit. And hopefully um, come to some biblical thinking on each one of these subjects so that we might pass the tests of life well. This topic that we're discussing today, it's an extremely important one. Pain's prolific in our lives. Comes in lots of shapes and sizes. Elizabeth Elliot writes, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice. And no one who calls himself a Christian can, can evade this stark fact. Even more than that, my sense is that 
the discomforts and the trials in life just get greater as time goes by. And I'll point you to Ecclesiastes 12.1. In Ecclesiastes 12.1, the author says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the dark days come, and the years draw near in which you have no pleasure in them. So what I take that verse to say is figure this stuff out now. All of us have had dark days in the past, but we still have a future to live, right? Figure these truths out now so that they will serve you well as those dark days come and as those years draw near in which you say, I have no pleasure in them, okay? I'm pretty certain that none of us will finish this race of faith well unless we understand these truths well. At the very least, we'll become grumpy, bitter old men, and at the worst, we'll reject God altogether. We will never finish this race of faith well. And again, I'll point you to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. There, right after having finished with all the examples of great faith in Hebrews 11, the author says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weights in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. I think one of those weights is improper thinking, and in particular, improper thinking about pain, because that's what the author goes to after that in Hebrews. So we want our understanding to be biblical in these four arenas, and so that's where we're headed. So first, let's talk about God. In our household, there are five truths that we major on with our kids. One is that God exists. Number two is that the Bible's the word of God. Number three, that Jesus is who he says he, or that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Number four, that God is sovereign and good. And number five, that we are slaves of Christ. Now, the first three, in my opinion, they're indispensable if you're going to call yourself a Christian. That you can't get around believing those three if you're legitimately going to call yourself a Christian. The next two, I think, are indispensable in regards to finishing this race of faith well, like I just talked about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to skip over the first three, and we're going to start with the sovereignty and goodness of God. Now, these truths, I just want to make a comment. I was, I was talking to someone earlier that as I go through this talk, I don't want you guys to think that I'm just talking about the big things in life, like the cancers or the deaths or the bankruptcies. I'm talking about the everyday discomforts that you experience in life that are tests, that are trials, that you will either pass or fail, and that you'll be held accountable for at the judgment seat. So I'm talking about both. And I would, uh, I would argue the small things, they're so much harder than the big things. So much harder, because they just keep coming at you and coming at you and coming at you. And like other people have said, if you don't have your game face on, if you don't have these truths that have trickled down into every nook and cranny of your soul, you have no hope of passing that trial. So let's talk about the sovereignty and goodness of God. Now, sovereignty isn't necessarily a word that you're going to find in the Bible, but I think this verse, Daniel 4.35, captures its meaning really well. It says all the, and this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, but he says all the inhabitants of the, worth, of the earth are reputed as nothing. For God does according to his will in the, in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That would be my definition of the sovereignty of God, that God does according to his will. God does it. Now, if you want to understand how the sovereignty of God fits together with pain, you have to understand at least three people's stories in the Bible. And I call it the three J's, Joseph, Job, and Jesus. And we're going to go through their stories. And what I want you to do is as we're kind of talking about them, I want you to ask yourself, 
who was the causative agent of the pain in their life, okay? So that's the question that I want you guys to be thinking about. Maybe you, maybe you already have an answer right now, but who is the causative agent of the trials and the pain that was brought into their life? So let's start with Joseph. So this Joseph is the son of Jacob, and he was the favorite son, right? Got the multicolored coat, and um, his brothers hated him for it. Remember, they, they threw him down into a pit, told his dad that he was killed, and sold him into slavery. He, was, he ended up in Potiphar's house, was framed by Potiphar's wife, thrown into jail, and then forgotten about in jail. Is that story? Remember that? Okay, good. So maybe you might say the causative agent of all the events in his life were people. And that would be okay for now. How about if we look at Job? If you remember, you, you get the majority of this information out of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job. But Job loses everything, right? He's kind of like the quintessential example of suffering. But he loses all of his wealth, and he loses it to raiders that come in and take it. He loses his family to a natural disaster. And then he's struck with boils. If you remember, Satan and God are kind of having this debate, and um, Satan goes out and strikes him with boils. So maybe with Job, you might say that it was people and it was Satan. And I ask, yourself, and I ask you the question, have, have you ever heard that when you talk to people? Man, Satan's really getting after me when they're going through hard times. Or maybe you've even said that. So how about the third, Jesus? Obviously, we know this story, right? Um, his apostles abandoned him. Um, Judas, indwelt by Satan, betrays him. He's delivered over to the, um, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. They deliver him over to Pontius Pilate, and the Romans kill him, right? So maybe you could say a mixture of people um, and Satan for him as well. Maybe for, for Job, you could say fate played a role. But as we look a little bit deeper into the verses that talk about who did it to these people, I want you to see something that, so for Joseph, and there are a few verses that say this, Genesis 45.5, Genesis 45.8, and Genesis 50.20, all basically say the same thing. And so this is Joseph speaking, and he says, now it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph understood that God did it to him. He understood that God was sovereign, right? God does it. How about with Job? It's a little bit longer of a verse, but this is the last chapter. And as you're reading through it, I'll summarize the first part. After Job prayed for his friends who were kind of unkind to him, God restored double what he had lost. And then he goes on to say, that his brothers and his sisters, they comforted him for all the adversity that who brought upon him? That the Lord brought upon him. So again, God did it to him. How about Jesus? Well, in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that God the Father has put him to grief and made his soul an offering for sin. So again, God did it to Jesus. So who was the causative agent of pain in their lives? The Bible says that God himself did it to each of them. The Bible doesn't say that he allowed it, but that he did it. God is sovereign in their lives. Now, if you're going to deal with pain properly, it's not enough just to, and someone else said this uh, a couple talks ago, but it's not enough just to believe in the sovereignty of God, that God does it to you, but you have to believe in his goodness. And in regards to his goodness, there are two questions that I want to answer that I think that anybody should ask in regards to the goodness of God. How good is God, and what does his goodness look like? So let's answer the first one first. So James 1.17 is where we find how good God is. Now, you have to understand the context, and probably a lot of you have studied James, but it's interesting that probably 
the previous 15, 16 verses in chapter 1 of James are talking about trials. They're talking about difficult situations. And then we come to this verse. And he says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light. So he's saying everything that I've talked about before, I want you to know that it's a good and it's a perfect gift from the Father above. Now, he doesn't just say that it's good, right? He says that it's perfect. And I want you to think about that. There's nothing better than perfect, right? And I've used this example before. If it's Christmas time and you, dads are kind of this way. You get maybe one or two presents under the tree. Your kids have about 17. And, uh, and you get like socks and maybe something else. But let's say you have two presents under the Christmas tree. You have from your kids maybe like underwear or a tie or socks or something like that. Now, that's a good gift, right? Maybe you need them, and your, your wife told them what to get you. But, but then you have another gift under that, under the tree, and you open it up, and it's a weekend away with your wife, just the two of you, no kids. One gift is good, <laughs> but the other, gift, the other gift is perfect, right? So how good is God? God is perfectly good towards us. There's nothing better then that trial, that particular pain that's come into your life, that's big. It's not just good, but it's perfectly good for what he wants to use it for. And that's what we're going to get to now. What does his goodness look like? Well, we talked about this verse earlier, Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that's the quintessential verse that talks about God's goodness. What is God's goodness? Well, the next couple verses tell us. So 8:29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. God's goodness is in getting our souls sanctified and getting us ready for an eternity with God. This is where we run into some problems. Because in our thinking, God's goodness is making this life more pleasurable and more happy and more fun and easier. And I don't want to imply that God doesn't care about our temporal life. He does. He's super gracious, but he cares so much more about our eternity and our souls. That's why he allows the outward man to perish, but the inward man to be renewed day by day, right? So we can't misunderstand what God's goodness is. C.S. Lewis talks about it as the lesser good and the greater good. So, what does his perfect good look like? His perfect goodness is in transforming our souls, getting us ready to spend an eternity with Christ in heaven. So, amidst the worst and least of pains, do you believe that God is sovereign and perfectly good in your life? If towards others you harbor anger or unforgiveness, the answer to that question is no, because biblically you can never have a problem with another person. How about amidst the relentless trials of life? Do you find yourself complaining? Do you view yourself as an innocent victim blaming Satan or others for your troubles? These are red flags that should alert you to the fact that you don't understand the sovereignty and goodness of God. Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 speaks really well to this. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us as the sons. My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I came across this quote, and I think it pertains perfectly. The author says, in your pain, see God for who he is. He is not tame. At times, he is terrifying, 
always sovereign, perfectly good, and the only one, the only being worthy of our trust. Men, it couldn't be any clearer than those verses I just gave you that God did it to Joseph, he did it to Job, he did it to Jesus, he does it to you and I, and he does it to us for our perfect good. So let me pause there, um, and then I'll move on to the next. Any questions so far? Are these truths that you guys have allowed to sink down into your souls? It's amazing if you just go through a day and you're thinking about how important it is to understand the sovereignty and perfect goodness of God, how many times you fail a trial because you don't understand that. Um, You should try it sometime. So Bryce, when this happens in our lives, I, I struggle because you know, I, you know, it's never, to your point, the big things, it's the little things that I get caught up in and angry about. And I just wonder, when, my, when does my anger take me into sin? You know what I mean? Is there a final, I mean, because I think it points Joseph and Job certainly was angry at God, even argued. And yet God didn't punish him for that. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Sure. I know in my life that when I indulge the thought a little bit too much, that's when I go into sin. And very quickly after that, my actions are going to follow. And so someone kind of annoys me because they're doing something. Well, my thought life, like I notice it, and I think at that moment, I have a choice whether to think properly about it or continue to progress in my sinful thoughts with it. And so I know that for me, that's where I go into sin. And it's similar to um, trying to keep your eyes pure and looking lustfully at a woman. That it's, it's infuriating to me that there could be a crowd of people here. And if there's one woman, my eyes light upon that person. But it seems like I have a choice what I do next. And... And that's where sin or passing or failing the test comes into play. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Mitch. I think that uh, you make an interesting point when you say that a lot of this speaks more to the small things in life than the big things. It seems to me, and, and curious to get your thoughts too, that perhaps the reasons for that is the big things feel like they're completely out of my control, right? You know, the cancers, the deaths, mm-hmm. the, the bankruptcies, as you said. Whereas the small things feel like they're within my perception of what I can control, and therefore those are the harder things maybe to, to give up to, to God's goodness. Am I on to something with that, or would you suggest something else? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I think, I think the small things, they're just so prolific, and they just keep coming at me, and and I get worn down, and I'm not ready for them. Um, yeah, yeah. You might be right, though. But, uh, but I know the small ones, they are the ones that drive me to repentance on a regular basis. And um, I don't know about you guys, but that's something that I've learned in the, in the past few years, just how how small my um, life of repentance really is. I don't really play back the tape of my day very much, and I would encourage you guys to do that if you don't do that. But at the end of the day, kind of thinking back or throughout the day, taking time just to rewind your life a little bit and be like, how did I do in those interactions? How was I thinking? Was I judging that person when I was talking to them? Did I say any mean words? Did I do any hurtful things to those people? And bring those to God. I don't, kind of like an athlete, they watch the tape to get better, right? That's what we want to do. We want to watch the tape of our life, bring it before God to let him process it with us, and 
obviously confess our sins to him, but we want to get better. We want our performance to improve. And so um, that is one benefit of, of um, yeah, thinking about those small things and playing back the tape. Anything else? Okay. So how do we, how do we misunderstand ourselves? Well, men, we have a disease, and that disease is sin. And it's not just the sin that we commit, but it's the sin that we are. That everything inside of us, that is our flesh, desires to be God of our own life, right? Now, I don't know about you, but most people I come across, they think that they're pretty good people. But again, the Bible says that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and that every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Now, briefly, we got that way in the Garden of Eden, right? So Adam and Eve, in their actions, they affirmed that they wanted to be God of their life when they ate from that tree, that they wanted to be on the throne, and they wanted God down below. We, as the human race, took God off the throne and put ourselves there instead. Romans 1 tells us that all of mankind did that, that we exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, like you, if we, in, or like me, if we put our faith in Jesus and are Christians, we've descended that throne, right? And we've allowed God to be on that throne and us to be submissive to God down below. Well, sort of, right? We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, but we still have that old nature. We have that flesh nature. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, I want to just start, you know, taking some steps back up that throne and take a little bit of control back from what I gave to God. Pain targets this continual desire of our flesh. And I think 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2 describes this well. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That pain in God's hand is his gracious thumb pushing us down off those stairs leading up to the throne, keeping us broken and humble and submissive to him in the position that we should be. It keeps us slaves of Christ. And this is that fifth truth in regard to finishing this race well, that we're slaves of God, we're bought at a price, and we're not our own. I want to give you an example of this that's played out in the Bible. Now, and this is the example of Jonah. And Jonah is just like us, right? He believed in God. And God asked him to do something. Remember, he asked him to go to Nineveh and preach, um, preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And what did Jonah say? He said no, right? And so God, in his sovereignty and perfect goodness, he gets Jonah put on a ship. He brings a big storm. He gets him thrown overboard. And he gets him eaten by a big fish, right? Now, this is what Jonah says in the belly of that fish. And I'm going to paraphrase it after I read it. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, my paraphrase of this is Jonah sitting in that whale and he's like, God, all this torque that you brought in my soul, the storm getting thrown overboard, eaten by this big fish, Lord, all this pain that you've brought into my life, it reminds me of what a stupid idea it was for me to try and run my own life, to be the sovereign of my own life. I get it now, Lord. I repent in dustcloth and ashes. And Lord, I remember now that promise that I made that I was going to give you my life. 
I want to keep good on that. And that's what pain does for us. Pain in the hands of the Holy Spirit breaks our stone hearts unlike anything else. It's God's jackhammer for our granite soul. Because we have a fleshly, depraved nature, because we want to be God of our own lives, pain is necessary to make us and keep us slaves of Christ. Any questions? All right, well, remember, the thesis of my talk is that we have misunderstandings about God, ourselves, this world, and pain. So we're on to this world, okay? Yeah. Revelation 3, 15 through 20, right in that section, yeah. The Luke, I'm pretty sure it's the lukewarm. Yeah, they think that they're rich but they do not know that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Yep. It's a fun one. I always say that one in my little eight-year-old boy. He laughs when I say naked. He's like, ah, you said naked. <laughs> he doesn't hear the rest of it. But Okay. Well, let's talk about this world. What do we not understand? Or excuse me. Am I on the right one? Yeah, this world. In regard to this world, how are we failing in our biblical thinking? As I look around, and maybe as I look in the mirror, I think most Christians are drunk on the temporal. And they're what I would call temporal optimists. See if this is you. The temporal optimist believes that this world is able to be perfected, that utopia is and should be attained this side of the grave. He says things like this to himself. God wants me to be happy and pleasured in life. Therefore, I'm going to make that my goal. If I'm good enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm powerful enough, or if I'm rich enough, I can achieve my goals in life. I can find utopia this side of the grave. I think the temporal optimist is also a fixer, and he believes that the grass is always greener on the other side. I just need to work harder to fix this. I just need to find the right formula to overcome the obstacles. Does this sound like you guys? Are you guys temporal optimists? Well, one problem with this thinking, besides it not being biblical, is that it trips you up when you encounter pain. And I want to give you an example of that. And we've talked so much about this at this conference that your thinking is really important, right? Your thinking drives your actions. And so unbiblical thinking is going to drive unbiblical actions. So let me use this example. Let's say I'm back in Tucson, and, and uh, with the cold here, um, I've had a few thoughts of that, being back in Tucson. But wintertime in Tucson is the place to be. Summertime in Pennsylvania is the place to be. But in the winter, it's great. We, uh, we plant winter grass, and so... It's not brown outside like it is here, but there's beautiful grass, even better grass than what we have uh, during the summer. So let's say I'm a temporal optimist, okay? And I have my rose-colored glasses on, and I'm thinking that God just wants me to ple be pleasured and happy in life all the days of my life. And I'm walking around in my backyard, and I take a step, and I step right on a nail. Well, obviously, the first thing I do, I fall to the ground, I probably say something I shouldn't say, hoping that my kids aren't around. And I'm down on the ground, and probably the first thought in my mind is, what the what, right? Why, why is this nail here? And now let's say it doesn't stop there. I don't like just take it out and I get better, but it festers, and it becomes infected. And then I got to go to the ER, and then about you know a month or maybe six months later, I get this massive ER bill, and I am just... I'm just upset. I'm angry about what happened to me. Well, my unbiblical thinking of being a temporal optimist, I would say, could drive me in three different directions. I could say, number one, that the world is wrong and I need to fix it. So as I'm sitting there seething, I'm like, all right, I am going to write my senator. 
I'm going to create some laws that we're not going to use nails anymore. Or maybe, maybe we're just going to use glue. Or maybe I'll invent something like a paper nail or something stupid like that, right? Well, well, I know that's a dumb example, but that's kind of what we do. And that's a little bit of what the social gospel is, right? That we're trying to create this utopia. When we experience pain, our reaction is that we want to eliminate all pain from this life. And we want to have this temporal utopia. And we think we can achieve it. Well, how about the second reaction that I might have? Instead of the world being wrong, maybe other people are wrong and they need to pay. And this is kind of the social justice movement. Maybe as I'm, as I'm sitting there pondering this ER bill, I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, I remember a few months ago, my neighbor, he was working on his roof, fixing it. And I bet he threw a nail over the fence into my yard. I'm going to sue that guy. I want to get justice. And so I deserve to be compensated. And so I'm going to get justice. So maybe that's the second unbiblical way that I react. Or maybe the third one, instead of the world being wrong, instead of other people being wrong, maybe, maybe I just feel like I'm wrong. And I don't know if you know this, but we have a huge problem with anxiety and depression in this world, right? In this country. Maybe, maybe this isn't the first thing that's happened to me. Maybe, you know, I've been sick. My dog died. I lost my job. And then this stinking nail came along. And I'm just like, I'm through with it. I, I don't feel like I can fix this world. I don't feel like I can get justice. So I'm just going to off myself and commit suicide and be done with this world. The biblical truth is that this world is broken by design of God, that we can't fix it, nor should we seek to fix it. Ecclesiastes 7, 13 and 14 says, Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. God has made this world perfectly broken for our benefit. God planned it this way so that we would never find utopia this side of the grave, but we would always seek for it in heaven, in him. So men, change your temporal optimism to biblical realism. Set your eyes on things above, not on the things of this earth. Seek first the kingdom of heaven in his righteousness. Pain in this world is normal. It's part of the normal Christian life. And I was thinking as, as uh, maybe as Jerry was talking and he was talking about all the technological changes and it just struck me that, you know, with some of these things that they're trying to do, they're trying to eradicate pain in this life. And we're going to talk about this coming up, but I think that that would lead to, um, to us not making it to heaven. I think we'd be really comfortable here on earth. And we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be understanding our brokenness and our need for God in turning, looking outside of ourselves to something else. So it's kind of a scary thing coming down. But let me stop there. Any questions I can answer so far? So let's talk about pain then. So as I, again, talk to men and look in the mirror I think that um, most people put an equal sign between pain and evil and pleasure and good. And you don't have to look very hard to know that isn't true, right? Um, we, as parents, we spank our kids. We inflict pain on them. And that's actually good. Pornography, strip clubs, drugs, they're, they're pleasurable things. We wouldn't partake in them if they weren't pleasurable, but they're evil, right? So you don't have to look too hard that you can't put an equal, side, equal sign between those things. And as best I can tell, pain is not a moral issue. It really depends on how it's given and how it's received as to whether it's good or evil. And we've already discussed that it's given by the hand of a sovereign and perfectly good God. 
So what it comes down to is how are we receiving it? How are we receiving the pain in our life? Are we allowing it to be transformational, being redemptive in our life? Or are we allowing it to be torture? Because if it's just pain without a positive effect in our life, I think it's just torture. And we have some control over that by how we steward the pain that God brings into our life. And so the question then becomes, how are we receiving God's gift of pain? Are we receiving it well? God has intended it to be transformational and make us into the image of Christ. And so as we ask that question, are we receiving it well, maybe we could look at the fruit that it's bearing in our life. Because I think there's rotten fruit that it can bear, and then there's ripe, delicious fruit that it can bear as well. So let's start with the rotten fruit. I think there are three things that, uh, that it results in often. It hardens people. It, and these are the complainers, the grumpy old men. Do you complain? Have you allowed whatever frustration it is to fester long enough to produce bitterness and hardness in your life? Tucson, there are a lot of grumpy old people. There are a ton. We, uh, uh, my wife and I and a few of our friends were involved in a school, and we had to go to the city council one time, and it was amazing to me that some of these old people got up and they're talking to the city council members because they didn't want us to do something at the school. And they just flat out said that they hate kids. And I'm like, fine, fine, that's all right. But I mean, that's the type, you get that. Like, I don't know if you've seen those sweet old, you have, you have seen the sweet old people, but where they've allowed Jesus just to continue to work in their life. I have a grandfather that he's evangelizing in his 90s and just the sweetest heart. But then you see those other people that they haven't processed the pain well and they're bitter and they're hard and you don't even want to be around them. We don't want to be those people. I think the second thing it can do is make you high. You can look for pleasure wherever you'll find it. And these are the addicts and pleasure seekers. Are you trying to numb the pain with unrestrained sinful lusts like sex or pornography? How about drugs or alcohol? Are you seeking pleasure wherever it may be found? And this, this reminds me of uh, Winston gave this example, not at this conference, but a while back. But two of the bigger problems or the biggest problems that we find in retirement communities are alcoholism and promiscuity. So they're trying to dull the pain and they're trying to maximize the pleasure because they've never learned to deal with pain properly. The third one are the abusers, the herders. Do you get angry and demand of people when you don't get your way? How about on the flip side? Flip side, pain received well, producing the fruit of righteousness. Well, I think it does at least three things, but pain, pain probably brought you into the faith if you came to faith later in life. Pain makes your faith better. And then pain helps your faith endure to the end. So it reveals to us a savior leading to salvation. It produces Christ-like character in us, like the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And it produces endurance. And so I look at this list and I ask myself, if technology is able to eliminate pain, these things don't happen. Us men in this room don't get to the finish line. So ask yourself the question, what fruit is pain producing in your life? Is it torturing you or is it transformational? Received well, it has tremendous potential for good. Received poorly, it destroys the good. Hebrews 12, 11 says, No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pain is God's gift in our life, getting us ready for an eternity with him. It's part of the process of sanctification from start to finish. 
and it's our responsibility to receive it well. So this is kind of the summary of what, of what I'm trying to say tonight. That our sovereign God in his perfect goodness takes depraved men like us and he graciously mixes us up in a broken world full of pain and suffering in order to sanctify our souls and make us ready for heaven with him as his humble slaves. Now, I think these are really, these are really important truths and they're big truths. And again, you just gotta, you gotta do your best to wrap your mind around them, to understand them, to apply them in your lives, to preach them to yourself over and over and over again. I hope you guys do that on a regular basis. You're, you're reminding yourselves of truths that you already know, but then you're preaching, it, preaching them to yourself as well throughout the day or throughout the weeks. Just to summarize what I've been saying, James 1-2, it says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. That word count is an accounting term. And basically, if you think about a bookkeeper, what they do is that they take receipts, right? Or they take numbers and they put them into different columns. And I'm simplifying, but there's a column for loss or debit, and there's a column for gain. And so God's saying, take that receipt, that pain, that discomfort in your life, and it might look like it's actually a debit, and it should go in the debit column, but he's saying, take it and put it in the gain column. Does that make sense? That's what we have to do in our thinking and in our actions. In that, yeah. So what I've done is, I've, there's a card on the corner of the table that might have gotten passed down to people. If you would do that, that would be great. Here are just some some ideas that I talked about today, but also some verses to back it up. But what I listed on this card were six things that I think you have to know and six things that, I, that you need to do amidst pain or discomfort in your life in order to steward it well. And so six things to focus on amidst pain. God's sovereign and he's perfectly good. Pain is necessary. Pain is normal because we live in a fallen world, you have a responsibility or you have a purpose on this earth with it. And then you need to focus on your reward in heaven. And so we talked about the first five. We didn't talk much about our reward in heaven, but that's already been discussed. And then I think there are six things you need to do amidst pain. You have to receive it well. You have to obey amidst it. You can't be deceitful to try and circumvent it or get out from under it. You have to hunker down. You have to sit amidst it. And I talk to guys about this a lot, that, that God is kind of, he's kind of like a chef and we're a bunch of turkeys, right? He knows, he knows the seasoning. He knows how much tenderizing to use. He knows the heat to turn the oven up to and how long that turkey needs to cook in order to come out luscious, right? We don't want to jump out of the oven. We want to let him do the work. Do you want to? Go ahead. Yeah, when you have a moment. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've heard you make a distinction about the pain that comes out from our sin. Is yeah. there a distinction to be made here, and could you address that for us? Sure. I would say the one thing I would add is that repentance is involved in regards to the pain that involves our sin, kind of like that Jonah example. Um, but unless you are willfully breaking a command of God, a negative command of God, it might be kind of hard to decipher if the things coming into your life are because of, of you sinning or is it just God's perfect will for your life? But obviously, if you're doing something stupid and 
you encounter a lot of pain, it seems to mix things up to me. Was that what God planned all, of, all along? Or is that kind of the, the second option that God's bringing um, difficulty in your life to get your attention, kind of like Jonah? Any other questions? Well, let me, let me finish this list and then I'll open it up. So hunker down, focus on Christ. Ask of God, and the focus on Christ is focusing on his truths that we find in the Bible. Ask of God, ask him for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. That's the next portion of that section in James 1. Thank him. Again, that's you counting it gain rather than loss. And be today focused, not tomorrow. So focus on today's troubles rather than worrying about tomorrow's because we got enough of them today, right? So let me sum up with this. And then uh, if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them. My daughter, she, uh, for her senior thesis, she wrote a paper on the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so she remarks in her paper the following. And what she did is she, she evaluated people's lives and um, and if they were still running hard for Christ. And this is the, uh, the remark that she made. She said, those who chose to endure and continue to walk with God, even amidst suffering, claimed an understanding and conviction of God's sovereignty and goodness. In the lives of those who fell away, we, need, we see no such conviction, but instead desperation for a tolerant, kind God who gives only prosperity. Men, we can't afford to believe in a God of our imagination like that. I pray that we are all overcomers to the end. Thank you, guys. God bless you. And any other questions? Bryce, you mentioned remaining in the pain when God brings pain. Is it legitimate for a person to try to find a way out of the pain? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, we all, I think, just naturally are going to do that. Yeah. And so there's probably some discernment. Um, if you can find a legitimate way out of the pain, I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to tell a guy not to take it. But if you can't find a legitimate way out of the pain, then you sit in it, and you just beg God to do his work quickly. But this is our life, right? This is from start to finish. It's not like, it's not like the pain gets better or goes away as we, uh, as we get older. It seems to me that it just continues to increase. Yeah, Todd. Just quickly, legitimate meaning not sinning? Yeah. That's not what you meant? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, thank you guys.